Father, we understand that Jesus came down here to minister to those who were like sheep without a shepherd. He brought instruction by way of just simply telling doctrine and stories, and he was relational. And he also had some hard words. We would ask, Lord, that you would help us to accept everything that you provide through your Son. That we'd not waver on what we think is right or wrong or socially acceptable. But we would stand firm on the foundation that you have provided. We ask, Lord, that as we do this, and some would take an offense possibly, that you would help us to minister and teach and instruct with gentleness and respect. That we would not yell, that we would not be harsh, but we'd simply proclaim your word as we are led by your spirit. In order to accomplish this, Lord, I pray that you would fill us full of your word, that it would be part of us just as any other part of our body exists. We thank you for leaving us, Lord, with this word for instruction. Please guide us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we covered what to do if someone sins against you. Matthew 18 spells out the process of going to that individual alone, just the two of you. And if the individual who sinned refuses to repent, we're instructed in Matthew chapter 18 to bring two or three witnesses to establish the matter. And if the individual who sinned refuses to repent, we are to tell it to the entire church. If the individual who sinned refuses to repent after listening to the entire church, we are instructed to remove that same individual from fellowship with the body. The public disclosure of sins is ultimately intended to bring about repentance through the use of shame. Shame is not something that is taught today. Uh, The thing that is most likely taught is you are good, you are valuable, and there is nothing wrong with you, and you should love yourself. And all of those things are wisdom of the world, but God points out several places in Scripture, at least a few, that shame being used in the proper way is helpful for the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, If any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there, or is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. And so Paul was talking, he is writing to the Corinthian church that they were ending up in secular courts, and he tried to use shame, like you shouldn't be doing this, in order to bring correction. 
And I'll get in a little more about shame, but first a couple more verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may, may be ashamed. In other words, you would shun that individual. Titus chapter 2, verse 8 says, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Of course, that's King James, but that's dealing with Titus and instruction about people who are contrary to what the teaching of God is. And so at least three times there, there is this use of shame or being ashamed or cause somebody to be shamed. And the goal of this, going through this process, is to restore the individual to a right relationship. A right relationship with the individual that maybe they have sinned against or people inside the church as a whole or with God specifically. God says that he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud, those who lift themselves up and will not receive correction. We've been going through the book of Proverbs with the youth, and we've been covering the verses of those who are mockers and scoffers and those who are fools, and now we're on those who are wise. And there are certain depictions of those who are fools, and one of them is they will not receive instruction, and they scorn those who attempt to give it. And so God is opposed to that type of individual. Now, shame is not the same as condemnation. Some people like to equate the two, that if somebody gets shamed, then they're therefore condemned, and they are worth nothing, and that is not the truth at all. Shame is used to keep us from being condemned. Shame leads to conviction. Conviction leads to humility. Humility leads to confession. Confession leads to salvation. That's how it's supposed to work. But again, this is not the teaching of the world. If we remove shame, we remove conviction. If we remove conviction, we promote pride. If we encourage pride, arrogance is brought to life. And where there is pride and arrogance, there is only damnation. So you see how it works? It's supposed to flow in a particular direction. If we go up to people who are prideful and arrogant and say, that's okay, you're a child of God. Well, they may or may not be a child of God, but you're certainly not going to lead them to the place of humility and confession. If you simply agree with the way that they want to cavort out in public or in private or the attitudes in their heart, if it's prideful, if it's lifted up, if it's arrogant, then we know that that person is under condemnation. Now, we don't need to go to that person and start condemning them because they are self-condemned. Somebody uh, yesterday sent me a little video of a preacher that was on YouTube and he was condemning, uh, condemning the homosexual community and he was yelling from his lectern and pounding on it. And he, his words, not mine, he was saying things like homo and he was saying things like queer and I know that those are pejorative terms which are out there. Those are meant to offend and that was coming from the preacher. And I thought to myself, you're doing nothing but simply offending. You're not getting the person to change their mind. And we are supposed to convince 
people that there is in fact error. And when the error is revealed, that can bring remorse or shame on the inside, which causes them to take account of their own lives. When accepted, confrontation leads to salvation. When rejected, confrontation leads to damnation. And so as believers, we, we probably all know somebody who is arrogant and prideful and will not listen to instruction. You know, the uh, book of Proverbs says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, that we're not supposed to engage them in the type of arguments they'd like to engage in. If they want to have a serious conversation, we're supposed to do so. Or the hot-headed man we're supposed to avoid, or the hot-headed woman We're supposed to avoid those individuals. They are considered fools according to the scriptures. We are supposed to maintain an even keel, not going too hard to the right, not going too hard to the left when it comes to our attitudes on the inside, not being a hard-headed, hard-hearted individual and not being apathetic and just saying, I don't care about anything. Let them do what they want. They don't bother me. Of course, that is not true. You've heard the saying, no man is an island referring to both men and women. You cannot conduct yourself in such a way and think that it's not going to affect those around you. It does affect those of us who surround somebody that is in that kind of condition. And by the way, Scripture does say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So if we're walking after the Spirit, if we are in Christ Jesus... There's no condemnation. But those who are walking after the world are filled with condemnation. Those who are not in Christ Jesus. And the reaction is to attack, to be violent, to suppress those who would say, this is wrong and this is right. There ought not to be any wrong or any right in their eyes except for one group of individuals those people who say there is right and wrong. Those people have to be suppressed. Those people have to be silenced. Those people have to have their free speech taken away. Those people have to be attacked, even physically, not just verbally. This group that is out there now, Antifa, called it's an abbreviation for anti-fascist. They are truly the fascists. That's what fascists do, is they use violence to subdue a group of people or an individual to make them conform to the image they have in their mind. They will not listen to instruction, but they must be opposed. Even if it means there's going to be injury, they need to be held to account for the violence that they would perpetrate upon those in our society. Now, all these things I'm telling you is very relevant for today, especially for the last month and leading up to this weekend. Now, by implication, those who walk after the flesh and not after Christ are self-condemned. When preaching takes place, a pastor or evangelist points out sins that are common to all men and women. There are none who are righteous, no, not one, according to the book of Romans. Those who hear either reject the message and will not listen, or they accept the message and they feel remorse which leads to humility, which leads to confession, which leads to salvation. God is not going to let anybody into heaven that is prideful or arrogant. Now, I will leave it to you to decide 
if this is true after seeing the behavior this last week of the women's soccer championship people. I don't know if you pay attention to the news or not, but then they brought them out in a parade and they were drunken brawlers in the parade. Now, I don't know about you, but what man could get away with that in a parade? And yet, is it, it is accepted like this is fine and we are free and we can do what we want when there is a, clearly a reject, rejection of God and his standards. And also, the pride celebrations all over the country this last weekend. Now, I know a few people who are in the gay lifestyle. I know them. I do not condemn them. They are self-condemned. But I love to have conversations with them. I love to talk to them. I love to talk about morality and where morality comes from. And I've, I've tucked it away in my mind to engage them in such a way, if they're willing to talk, that will help them to see. And that's what we're supposed to be schooled in doing. We are not simply supposed to be Christians that come to church, sit down, sing the worship, listen to the message, and go about our daily lives the rest of the week. It's kind of like the question of tithing and giving. Some people will ask the question, so how much do I need to give to God? And some people will say, well, a tithe is 10%. And a tithe was practiced in the Old Testament, and Jesus even condoned that practice. The widow's might, she gave 100%, but at least 10%. Well, in the Old Testament, it was actually 23 and a third percent. And so if you want to actually conduct yourself in a way where you are tithing, you would give, according to the Old Testament, 23 and a third percent of your income. And that's the total tithe because you would give some to the temple for the poor and for the priest. You would every third year give that. And you would also give your regular offering at 10 percent. And then also, uh, like I said, for the poor, there were three different divisions there. There were the poor, there were the priest, and then there was your regular tithe that you were supposed to give. And so that's what it added up to. And people ask, well, how much am I supposed to give to God? It's the wrong question. The question is, how much do I get to keep? But people listen to that and they go, what do you mean how much do I get to keep? It's my money. No, it's God's money. And God gives it to us, and he sustains us. But see, our attitude is flipped on that. Our attitude is one of, I'm in control, and everything is just fine, and I get to decide. But the believers, whether this church or another church, or just the believers universal, we have this idea, well, how much time do I need to give to God? And that's not what we're supposed to look at. We're supposed to look at, How much time should I devote to myself? And some would live the ascetic lifestyle and they would say, well, I should take a shower and brush my teeth and eat. That way, I'll survive at least for a few years. I should take care of myself. I need to devote some time to doing that. The rest of the time, guess who it belongs to? It belongs to God. Now, if he wants you to take a vacation and relax, by all means, take the vacation and relax. If he wants you to get away for a retreat and just, you know, meet some people or do something like, by all means, go ahead and do so. But the vital question is, have you even considered that the rest of your lives and my life belongs to God? We don't do that. We say, 90% of my life is mine, 
and I will give 10% to God, and mostly on the weekends, not during the week. There are people during the week, if we would just reach out to them, they would receive the gospel, they would receive Jesus Christ, they'd get saved, and you could invite them to church. And by the way, I am preaching to a group of believers, and there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're sitting there under a cloud going, oh, I'm falling short, this is where the self-reflection comes in. You look at the scripture and say, am I doing that which it says, or am I not? Now, the reactions that come from that are, I don't even want to think about this. I'm just going to put this to the side because I have some things to do. I've got to go to lunch today and I've got to cut the grass and, you know, I've got to do a few things on my own. We don't like to think about it. But when we sit down and we focus and we say, God, am I doing everything that you want me to do? And if we find ourselves falling short inside even the believer, guess what will come? Shame and remorse. When that shame and remorse comes, it brings about an idea that we should correct what we are doing or what we are not doing. And that brings about confession. Lord, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I'm just not doing what I need to be doing for you and your kingdom. And we all know that it is not by works that we are saved, Ephesians 2.8. None of this leads to salvation. This is simply doing what a disciple has been called to do. So this process has been laid out in Matthew chapter 18 for dealing with sins between individuals, sins of commission, sins that somebody perpetrates upon another individual. They say, I'm going to do this to this individual and they're not going to like it and I don't care and it's just going to happen. And then the person who gets sinned against is supposed to come back and talk one-on-one to that person who sinned against them. That's a sin of commission. But we build up, and I'd say we because I include myself in this, we build up sins of omission where we don't do something that we were supposed to do. For instance, I'm going to tell you a story out of Matthew that we'll get to in a couple of months probably. Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the goats on his right and the goats on his left, or the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? We needed clothes or or needed clothes and you clothed us or we clothed you. When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. 
They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. How many people out there that are truly poor get ministered to? Now, I've talked about the poor before in this church. How the poor, we, we really don't have poor in San Diego when it comes to being poor. You have poor in Cambodia, you have poor in Africa. But here, uh, we're not suffering too much as far as the poor are concerned. The poor often become homeless and they choose to remain homeless. And there is no motivation to move forward because everything is provided for them. And remember I talked about that? The thing that drives on a man or a woman is hunger. If you let them get a little hungry, well, they might be motivated to do something. And everybody should be doing something in society to benefit those who are around them because it adds to commerce. You'll have some also to pay for somebody else who has nothing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But if we go to these far reaches of the world where so many millions are just impoverished, have nothing. Remember the pictures I showed you of Africa, the generational clothing that the kids wore that had holes in it? Part of it wasn't even clothing that they were wearing, and that's all they had. And whenever you gave them something like a fruit bar, they would grab it jealously and hide it from anybody else because that was a treat. That was something special. And you walk into the supermarket here and you're just overwhelmed. Just go down the candy aisle sometime. I mean, you look at that, and not only the candy aisle, but the bread aisle or the cereal aisle, or you go to the meat counter and you're just going, what kind of meat do I want today? And that's what we do. Now, again, I, I'm not telling you this to bring a cloud of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But I would not be doing my job if I didn't point out what the Lord's will was concerning these things. Our time is the Lord's. How much is ours? We need to ask Him. Wherever we go to church, we need to ask Him, do you want me here? You know, oftentimes we, we may go to a church or we may go to an event and we say, I don't like that speaker. I don't like that band. I don't like the people there. We make all these reasons why we can't do something. I need to sleep in. Uh, scripture says, do not love sleep. I, I hate that one, personally. <laughs> but it says, I'm not to love sleep. And, and so when, when it comes to our walks, it's simply we need to know what the Lord's standard is. And I give you this instruction. I have received it myself from others. I'm passing it on to you. And we do not want to get to heaven. And, and we get there and the Lord says, so what did you do? Not that you won't get to heaven. I believe believers will still get to heaven if they do a little or they do a lot. But you get to heaven and somebody will have just this mountain of gold, silver, and precious stones. And, and of course, that's not literal, but it will be honor extended to them because how they sacrificed here. But then there will be somebody that comes into the gates of heaven 
And they reach down, and in their hand is a little pinwheel. And they give them the pinwheel, and they say, that is your reward. Because there was nothing else done. And you go, you'll be happy. Look, I got a pinwheel. You know, it'll be great. But you'll probably regret, well, maybe I could have done more. I'm, you know, myself and the people that I've known that have influenced me, I've never heard them say, I've done enough praying. I've done enough loving people for God. I've done enough witnessing. That's it. Okay, I'm going to take a break now. There is no break in God's economy. God wants us to walk in the newness of life, to be those disciples he has asked us to be. Now, actions of the flesh, sins of commission, are never to be thought as greater than sins of omission. Sins of commission are the same as sins of omission. If you say, well, I'm not sinning, well, it depends on if you're doing or not doing. You're still sinning. If you know the good you ought to do and don't do the good, that's considered sin. And God says, don't do that. If we fail to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of others, we should feel remorse for not doing so. Those who are saved are driven by God's Spirit to love and good deeds. The person who has God's Spirit, they don't consider it work. They just go, this is so much fun. What are you doing? I'm cleaning out a sewer for God. You know, and well, you're going, well, well, wait a second. No, see, we're to work as unto the Lord. We're not to regret the things that we have to do. It's a burden for me. You've imposed this on me. And if somebody asks you to do something, if you're walking in the Spirit, you say, okay. And you're happy. It's like, I'm doing this for the Lord. And we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven when we decide, okay, that's what I'm going to do. It's almost like, you know, Scripture says, whatever you do, do with all your might. Whatever your right hand takes to do, use all your might. I've often told my daughters in the past that if a guy got fresh, I think I told you, if a guy got fresh, said, use your right hand with all your might. And what I would tell them, specifically one daughter, I would tell her, you know, let your thumbnails grow a little long and just kind of go with it for a second and put your hand on the side of his face and ram that thumb right in his eye and he'll learn. You know, with all your might, you're supposed to do that. Imagine being in the Olympics and you're a javelin thrower and you don't do it with all your might. You hop up there, you throw that thing. Or what about the shot put? It's so heavy. And you just throw it out there. What if you run? I'm galloping. No, he says, with all your might, we're running a race. Paul talked about boxing. You know, when you're boxing, you're going, oh, it hurts. You know, yeah, we're supposed to do it with all our might. And our walk is supposed to be the same. Now, this applies to somebody who cannot walk physically who is not able to get out, as well as a person who is young and they're strong and they can do all these fantastic feats because the person who is immobile, they can pray. The person who is strong, they can work. And all of those things work together. And of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. I get that. There's always somebody who really can't, for whatever reason, do something or be involved. 
And that's, again, I'm going to say it again, Romans 8, verse 1, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But James chapter 2 tells us, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Yeah, I need to insert this. We don't have a building project coming up. We don't have a re-landscaping in the front. We're not going to do a painting job tomorrow. I'm not saying anything like this to motivate the body because we have something we want to do here. It's just the normal everyday life is what I'm referring to. There's no special event that I'm trying to point to to motivate those who are here. I just want your relationship to be consumed with Christ and not self. And if we do that, remember the book In His Steps? Remember the bracelets that were made possible by that? WWJD? What would Jesus do? If we're asking that question constantly, He'll guide us. He'll tell us. He'll present the opportunities. If we fail to engage in the work of training ourselves and ministering to others, we're not fit for the kingdom. Luke 6, or 9, verse 62, Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. And so this idea that when somebody sins against us, you know, we we think we're going to use Matthew 18 and we're going to get justice and all of that. Yeah, but we can't forget the sins of omission. At this point, it's appropriate to feel bad. If we feel bad and have fallen short of God's command to consider others better than ourselves, some pastors and teachers might try to project to manufacture guilt onto the listeners. I'm not trying to do that at all. Some listeners might say, well, pastor's being very harsh and condemning this morning, isn't he? And you can go home and have roast pastor. That, that, is, not, that is not the pastor's job. My job is to simply feed God's sheep, to love them, to give them proper instruction. When your child or children, when they grow up, you give them instruction. And when they fail... Do you immediately stop in to prevent them from failing or do you let them fail? Because failing is a great teacher. Now, I'm not advocating that you let them fall into harm's way, but it's kind of like shame. We want to remove shame. Oh, it's all right. He was so mean. Well, no, if the shoe fits, wear it. Because if it does, if you wear the shoe of shame, so to speak, it leads to those things again, conviction, humility, confession, and salvation. And that's what we all need. We all need, especially myself, need to be reminded of that. So my job is to feed God's sheep, to let them know the will of the Father, to point everyone in the right direction. If there is conviction, it is there because God's Holy Spirit It shouldn't be there because of me. For those who do a self-examination, there is no guilt or shame, only reverence for the one who has called us to salvation. If you're doing everything you're supposed to do, great. But you should never arrive at the point where I've done enough. 
I'm at the end of the road. Now, unless you're going to die, that's not true. And if you say, well, I will someday. I will die someday, so I'm done now. I want to enjoy the rest of my life. Now, when we get to heaven, it's going to be so great. You're going to have the best vacation, and you're not going to get sunburned. It's just going to be a great thing, and you can eat whatever you want. You won't overeat, and all the food will taste good, and you'll be filled with joy because you're going to have your new body. And it's going to be fantastic. And we'll be able to deliver instruction to those who are still occupying the earth here during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it's going to be a fantastic thing. It's the deferred gratification. We're here, we're living for God, and we're living for others so that in the future we'll be able to do so with a pure heart, no ulterior motives whatsoever. My encouragement to all who are here is seek forgiveness, walk in humility, grab the plow, forge ahead. Do not be filled with apathy and fail to be concerned over the lost wherever they may be found. That should be our concern. And that can become infectious. People will see what you're doing and then they'll say, you know... I should probably do something like that as well. Well, we are talking about forgiveness, and we're talking about sin and the approaching of somebody who has sinned against us. And I talked about the three types of forgiveness last week, the exoneration, the forbearance, and the release. Exoneration is the way it's supposed to be, where there's open communication, everybody's going back and forth, it's wonderful, there's nothing held against them. Forbearance is, well, I forgive you. Forgive me. I'm sorry. You know, and you walk away and you just tolerate each other. That's the forbearance. And then there's release, the one-sided, I just forgive him. That's not biblical forgiveness. I talked about that. So biblical forgiveness is unattainable to those who will not forgive. We must forgive as Jesus forgave. God's forgiveness is conditional, like Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day he comes back to you and says... Forgive me, you're supposed to forgive him. If he repents, you're supposed to forgive him. And if we confess our sins, God always forgives us. There's not a single sin that he won't forgive. And forgiveness of sins is never never unilateral, extended one way. It doesn't work that way in Scripture. And also forgive, forgiveness requires sincerity. You can't do it unsincerely. You have to be able to Release it from your heart. Just abandon it and say, I will not pick up this bitterness again. And that's at the root of unforgiveness, is bitterness. You wronged me, and I can't let go of it. And that's where God says, just let go of it. Now, Scripture does tell us it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. And that word for offense is sin, to overlook a sin but that's for the health of the individual. That's not what biblical forgiveness looks like. And, of course, I always get questions after a message on forgiveness, and I did last week, and this idea of, well, what about the people that you have tried to make contact and you can't? Can I still worship? Yes, you can. You've, you've made the attempt. That's all you can do. And that's where the book of Proverbs comes in. It's to a man's glory or a woman's glory to overlook an offense, to overlook a sin. And you, you want to walk in this life sanely and not be heaping upon yourself guilt. But there is regret. There is remorse. But you just give it to Jesus. And Jesus says, it's all right. I know. I know what's in your heart. I know you want to correct it. 
And I know there's pain and there's scars that are left behind. But it's all right. And Jesus will say, I have scars too. And that's how we're supposed to look at not obtaining forgiveness. You just make sure that your heart is right. Now, this leads into church discipline, where you take an individual and you'd say, look, we've approached you in three or four or even 50 different ways because the whole church gets involved, and you will not repent. And at that person, you ask, or at that moment, you ask that person to leave the fellowship. But I want to make something perfectly clear. The only time you do that is when the individual is being pridefully unrepentant. That's the only time where maybe you've given instruction and what if they're questioning? Well, I don't know if that's the case. Work with them. Say, let me point it out to you. And there will come a point after several meetings where they'll say, I'm not changing. Or they will say, I'm changing. When I've dealt with things like this in the past, it never gets to this point. What happens is, I meet with them over and over and over. Because you can tell they're kind of wavering. Well, yeah, I understand. I, I want to do things right. And, yeah. and I bring them in and say, you know, look, this is what Scripture says. I want to encourage you to do the right thing. And, and they go away and maybe things haven't changed. And I say, hey, I want to talk to you again. Let's meet. And usually they just end up leaving. I don't have to do anything besides that. There's only been one time where I've done something like that. One time out of 28 years. I hope it's never more. And that's for the benefit of the body as well, that we don't have to go that far. But Scripture does clearly say there are reasons to ask somebody to leave the fellowship. Uh, Number one, I have about four points here on this. Why you would ask somebody to leave the church. Of course, the first one that we just covered is if somebody sins against you and they don't repent, they're pridefully unrepentant, you ask them to leave the fellowship. Secondly, sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. So what that saying is, if somebody is in the body of Christ, they're being sexually immoral, and they are pridefully unrepentant, you're to ask them to leave. But the person of the world who is not a believer that comes into the church, you're supposed to let them stay. Because God requires a different level of commitment for those people who are believers. If somebody came in here who is transgender, if somebody came in here who is living together as a couple, and they weren't saved, I would say, welcome. Sit down. Let me tell you the gospel. Let me know what Jesus has in store. But for the person who knows and refuses to repent, well, that's a different story. But then there are also those who are caught in a sin and you minister to them. You never call them out. You, You do what you can to help them, to lead them, to guide them through their difficulties in life. Secondly, there are those controversies that come up and people like to argue and be divisive. Titus chapter 3 verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, 
have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And so if we hold to a particular doctrine here like the deity of Christ and the virgin birth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, his second coming, his second advent, all of these things, these are scriptural doctrines that we'd hold to. If somebody doesn't want to hold to those, we'd ask them to leave. Well, go somewhere where you believe that. We also had an individual here once who thought he was a prophet. He thought I should get a machine gun permit. He thought that we should have a place over by Mount Laguna where we could all go as a church because Y2K was coming and there was going to be real problems. And I kept on talking to him. I said, dude, you've got to get this straight in your mind. Well, circumstances being what they were, he ended up leaving. But, you know, sometimes there are people that are divisive and he would start talking to people in the church. There was another guy we had going through the church. He'd go to the men. Anybody in here wearing a hat today? If you're wearing a hat, he would come up to you and say, why are you wearing a hat inside the church? Women can cover their head, but men ought not to cover their head. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I had to tell the guy, knock it off. What are you doing? He also believed that if you have enough faith, remember when Lazarus was risen from the dead? And Jesus goes up to Mary, and Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he goes, do you believe in me? She said, well, yes, Lord, I believe in you. If you believe in me, you will never die. Well, this guy was going to the church and saying, if you have enough faith, you'll never die, physically. I'm going, what? Hold on a second. We're all under a curse. There's only two people I know of that haven't died, and they probably will in the tribulation. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of that, but I tried to correct the guy, and the guy would not be corrected. And I actually asked him, I said, okay, man, you need to go. You shouldn't be hanging around here. You're teaching false doctrine like that. So because of false doctrine, controversies. It also says in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. And so those people, doctrinally, that cause divisions, that come in or just practice, you know, the way that we do things, and hopefully there's nothing that we do that is not biblical here, but we're supposed to ask the divisive person to leave as well. Poor doctrine, judgment being gathered to Jesus and lawlessness. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, and he's referring to the rapture of the church and the resurrected body and the wrath of God to come, those things, it says, Take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. There's that word again. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And again, pridefully unrepentant. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Mark this, that there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know what the final word is? Have nothing to do with them. 
And so if people are like that inside the church, God says, no, that's not supposed to be the makeup of the church. And it's the body's job, as well as those in leadership, to handle this. Those of you who know doctrine, if somebody spouts off a false doctrine, you're supposed to say, I don't think, where does it say that in Scripture? And you call them nicely to account. You don't have to take your Bible and slap them upside the head and say, what are you talking about, you numbskull? You don't know what you're saying. You don't have to do that. You just have a nice conversation about the Bible to bring people in line with what God is telling us. So God is all about using shame, conviction, and humility to bring about repentance and salvation. God is also opposed to pride and arrogance. These are characteristics of this world and will not be a part of the kingdom of God or a part of his body. This is a solid direction from God's word. It is trustworthy and true. But it is difficult. If you know somebody that is in this kind of situation that they're prideful or they have false doctrine and, or they're, they're being just disobedient in several different ways, yeah, they have to be dealt with. But don't forget those of us who have sins of omission should also take account of what we're doing and what we're not doing. That's in the context of Matthew chapter 18. If somebody sins against you, go to them. Well, have you sinned against somebody by a sin of omission? Now, I'm not going to go so far to say that if you don't go witness to somebody, they're probably not going to be saved. God's bigger than that. And if you choose not to follow God and be active in studying and being a disciple and putting your faith to your hands and going out there and also to your feet, if you don't do that, well, for that individual, it only means loss of reward. It doesn't mean you're not saved. Although I would question the person who produces no fruit in their life. And it's not just the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control against such things. There is no law, and that is absolutely true. But faith without works is also dead. So you understand how all this ties in? If we want to condemn somebody because they have sinned against us, and we want to kick them out of the church, for which there are several reasons to kick somebody out of a church... We also want to take inventory of ourselves. When we point the finger at somebody else, there are three fingers pointing back at us. See those three? We can be three times as guilty as the individual we point to. My prayer for you is that we can look at a section of Scripture like this, and I'm not going to go into the next section. There's a lot to deal with there. By the way, when it comes to the... uh, I'm just going to give you a preview of it here. You have this king, and this king calls this man in to give an account and to also pay up his debts. And I did some research onto a hundred talents, a hundred talents of gold. A hundred talents of gold, if you were to compare it, one person, it's in the NIV study Bible, one person said it is equivalent to, in our today's dollars, $2.5 billion or 150,000 years of work is how long it is. And so God is using hyperbole here to describe the person who has been forgiven a debt. The debt we have been forgiven is 150,000 years worth of work and $2.5 billion. Do you think you'll ever pay back $2.5 billion, well, maybe if you are Bill Gates, somebody like that. 
But our, the point of the passage is, it's too much to be paid back. We're going to be in prison forever. And the guy who owed a few denarii, which turned out to be about $2,000 in our day's wages, that guy, he had a small debt. And it focuses on the person who refuses to forgive. Jesus wanted to drive home the point from beginning in Matthew where it says we're supposed to go to the individual and then take two or three and then tell it to the church. We are supposed to recognize that the individual who refuses to forgive sin and refuses to repent of the hardness of heart will be imprisoned forever. And that is not the person who is a believer. Again, when somebody sins against us, it causes pain, it causes scarring, it causes hurtful memories that will come up and just invade. And Jesus is right there and he puts his hand on our shoulders or on our head. He gives us a hug and he goes, I know, I know. So that is the grace we're supposed to walk in. We have been forgiven such a great debt. And forgiveness is so important to God the Father that he sent Jesus Christ the Son so that we might have forgiveness. May God grant you the grace to forgive those who have sinned against you, the willingness. And may you be able to connect with those who there needs to be a reconciliation with. And may the peace of God, which passes understanding, invade your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we, we look at your word and, and sometimes it's hard. And I would ask that you would encourage all those who are here just to be obedient to your word, to walk in humility, to trust in you for justice, and live a life of peace where we do not have to toil or become apathetic or jaded because of so many problems. We ask that you would fill us full of the joy of the Lord, that as we walk in the newness of life, we will anticipate what lies ahead, and that will be our focus. We thank you for calling us to salvation. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you'd work on their heart, that they would confess you as their Lord and Savior and believe in your, their hearts that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is able to forgive us our sins. So, Lord, we hope we have <clears throat> blessed you today, but we ask that you would continue to bless our fellowship even after the service. In Jesus' name, amen.